So my paper is called Money is Money, and um, it's on Suzanne de Bernhoff's Marxist Monetary Theory. And what I'm trying to do with Suzanne de Bernhoff's work is try to articulate um, a renewed theoretical premise to understand how to relate the kind of bifurcated discourses of value form theory on the one hand and social reproduction theory on the other. And um, something at kind of the premise of these different readings, um, it has to do with a differential reading of money, even in someone like um, Silvia Federici is working on social reproduction theory. Her, um, her premise on money sort of relies on the workerist tradition, and um, this tradition allows for kind of like um, quite a different reading of Marx than you might see on the side of the value form theory reading. And so, um, as a result, we see like quite a tension between these two sides. That often, what's being said on the side of social reproduction theory can't really be read into value form theory theoretically, and so I'm trying to sort of like make a theoretical space to um, take what's important about both sides and understand them um, through Suzanne de Bernhoff's work. So this paper aims to highlight the significance of an intervention de Bernhoff made within the pages of the workerist journal Primo Maggio, which triggered a debate between herself and Lapo Berti who was a representative of a research program on money initiated by members of the journal's collective. And this was the last workerist journal before um, there was this sort of change in organization. It became the autonomous movement. And it was right before Tronti left the collective. This novel intervention of the, on the part of de Bernhoff represents an interaction that reflects a bifurcation in Marxist theory between two sides which were at the time almost completely disconnected. It's meaningful to reflect on this debate in the present as the theoretical presuppositions that were being worked out still mark competing perspectives between Marxist and post-Marxist theory today. This divide is largely based on a distinction between two different readings of the role of money. Money is understood to exert command over exploited labor or money is capital and this is on the side of the workerist tradition where they basically theorized that because of the um, fall of the gold standard, this meant that money was unpaired from the value form and then acted as a kind of like political command. Um, versus the commodification of social life under the commodity money capital relation. Two theoretical presuppositions that continue to divide the field. What this paper will show is that it is de Bernhoff's focus on money and money, money as money, that offers us a unique position from which to account for concerns propagated between these two sides. And in doing so, gives us a unique entry point into understanding the internal complexities of the capital relation in the present as value form readings that interpret the capital relation from the point of view of social form tend to obscure the role of social reproduction and the state, two aspects that, money is, that a money as capital reading tends to pay more attention to. Um, and this is where you find someone like Silvia Federici's work is in that camp. What I aim to show is that this bifurcation results in a theoretical lack in explaining our present on both of the sides. In Marx on Money, published in 1967, De Bernhoff begins an analysis of the role of money in Marx's capital from the point of view of a general theory of money or money as money. De Bernhoff argues for a theory of money that understands money as a product of capitalist relations, albeit a product that contains its own independence. To think this, we have to understand money as both a product of and at the same time separate from capitalist relations. This role of money is a result of money's appropriation from being a thing of economic use value, standing in as the form under which value becomes exchange value. Money is able to do this through its distinct role as the universal exchange value. Value can be exchanged only when value is formalized under a universal measure that can then account for differences in value. However, 
the measure of value is but one function of money that is entirely dependent on money's other function of circulation. As a medium of circulation, money provides the role of the means for realizing social relations through not only acting as a means to set into motion the production process, but also through financing production and connecting the different moments and actors within the production process. For example, as noted by Granziani, since wages are paid with money, it is necessary for money to initiate production, a process that concludes itself through the sales of commodities that then retroactively fund the financing of wages only after the money that financed production has changed its forms. Hence, within the production process, money must constantly be converted into other value forms through circulation. Money then ultimately functions as the connecting agent behind social relations as a medium of circulation. This gives money its own temporality, set apart from the temporalities that make up other social forms. That might sound like a bit of an enigmatic statement, but what it means basically is that um, it's thinking of temporality from the point of view of duration of social practice, and so every like, form of social practice within not just the production process, but within all aspects of our social life contain their own distinct duration. And um, so money as a sort of connecting agent ha has to have a temporality set apart from the durations of social practice in order to coordinate them. And um, what's interesting about that for um, thinking about Suzanne de Bernhoff's work is that this also means that you might want to say that money also has a temporality that is a kind of non-capitalist temporality. Um, only through existing within its own temporality can money connect the different temporalities internal to the social practices of production and social reproduction through its circulating function in facilitating the passage of value between the different forms. <coughs> it is on this basis that de Bernhoff describes the money form as imminent exterior externality from the from the capitalist form, distinguishing between the relation of circulation and the relation of production. And that term's quite important, imminent externality. The idea is that um, the non-capitalist form is produced by the value form itself. So it's not this sort of trans-historical um, form. De Bernthoff's use of the term imminent externality refers to how money as form is not simply either internal or external to the capitalist production and reproduction process. In order to reproduce the basic capital relation, money cannot be reducible to an expression of the capitalist relation. This makes money form a form that is other than the capitalist relation of production or a non-capitalist form within capitalism. What de Bernhoff has in mind is an insistence on that the institution that reproduces capital must supplement capital's own logic. In their emergence, both money and commodity rely on the money-commodity gold for their mutually constituting structural relations. However, money, while finding its genesis in commodity, develops into a general form that is both a bearer of the universal measure of value and the form under which value can circulate from one form into another. Due to this role money plays in the development and the intelligibility of value, we find that money is at once the most basic and the most abstract form of value. De Bernhoff's work on money reflects the way in which the commodity does not exist without the mutual constitution of money as the form that is taken on by abstract labor. Therefore, for de Bernhoff, as in Marx, money is the form that facilitates the capitalist mode of production due to its role in the extraction of surplus value from living labor. However, de Bernhoff at the same time emphasizes the need for an internally differentiated understanding of money's role as not being a strictly capitalist form, although imminently capitalist. According to de Bernhoff, what is sidetracked in a purely value form reading that focuses on money's fetish character is the implication that due to the structure of the value form, money is a mechanism at the heart of capital relations with social, economic, and political consequences 
that exceed money as a mere phenomenal appearance of value, especially in its more developed forms within the credit system. The emphasis on money as a phenomenal appearance of value and the resulting centrality of the commodity exchange forces to the periphery the mediations that structure an analysis, the analysis of value form. So what I'm saying is that value form kind of leave, it leaves out a lot of the social mediations in which it depends on. These mediations include the social, economic, and political implications of historically specific forms of capital accumulation that are formative of the role of the state, wage relations, social reproduction, technological change, and the mode of labor, both paid labor and unpaid labor. The first article representing the general position developed by the Primo Maggio Working Group on Money was presented by Lapo Berti. Berti's article, Dinero Come Capital, or Money is Capital, appeared in issue 3-4 of Primo Maggio in 1974. One of the very few texts published as a result of the working group's efforts, the article aimed to understand the role money plays within the production process as a mechanism working to subordinate labor through a reading of money as capital. Relying on the premise that the crisis in monetary mechanisms on the global scale were, to quote Bertie, precisely a crisis of the functioning capitalist command on the basis of hetero-given relations of production, relations of force, sorry, unquote. According to Bertie, the fall in the dollar at the heart of the monetary crisis of 1974 is a direct product of class conflict and therefore the crisis of the hegemony of American capital. For the working group, this meant that the central aspects of Marx's reading of money could no longer apply to this context. At a 1975 conference organized by the working group titled The Marxist Discourse on Money in Light of the Monetary Crisis, a rare dialogue was triggered between the working group and de Brunhoff. In her insistence to maintain a commitment to both money as money and money as value form, de Bernhoff presented a paper that was staunchly critical of the theoretical presupposition of money as capital. In Bertie's, in Bertie's presentation, it is de Bernhoff's conviction that the point of view of money as capital is based on a method that, through reintegration of concepts used in bourgeois political economy, fails to have a critical stance that is able to grasp the complex, multifaceted nature of money in capitalist societies. In doing so, she believed this undermined the legitimacy of the important implications drawn from Bertie's reading, such as an understanding uh, of money as an instrument of command over labor. In reaction to the suspension of the convertibility of the dollar into gold in 1971, Monetary economics had largely developed based on the rejection of the relationship developed by Marx between the money form and the extraction of surplus value from labor. This is precisely the line Bertie et al. had followed. The final 1971 replacement of the gold standard by state debt, serving as both a national unit of account and means of circulation, means that there is no longer a commodity produced by labor time functioning as the link between labor and the accumulation of value. With this in mind, Bertie claimed the category commodity money no longer corresponded immediately to the actual capitalist reality because after 1971, the creation of money with all the consequences that this process entails in terms of the distribution of income and the economy's equilibrium uh, is now a process that depends on a theoretically unlimited measure upon the decisions of the central bank. Um, that was the point of view of Barty. And um, Suzanne de Bernhoff also didn't agree with the possibility of equilibrium, which is another problem with this reading. In contrast for de Bernhoff, because the role of money as commodity put into place a historical social form, the elimination of the convertibility of currencies and therefore money into gold, be this its 1933 variation or the subsequent international monetary regulations of Brenton Woods 
that took place over um, between 1944 and 1971. It was quite like a slow process, actually. It didn't all happen in 71. Does not, this does not change the formal dynamics of the form of money as commodity. Since money's origins are in gold as a standard, this brings into being its formal structure that nonetheless continues to define money, regardless of whether we continue to use the gold standard from which the form originated. What de Bernhoff claims we miss when theorizing money as capital are the inner workings of the social conditions that allow a use value to become money based on Marx's project to show how commodity production is based on the retroactive social validation of abstract labor contained in the commodity. This immediately private labor is validated as social ex post in universal exchange or the final exchange on the commodity market, providing commodity with its social character through the final monetary validation. Generalized social labor only becomes so when the commodity is sold and thus given a price that ex post represents Darstelung in an amount of money. This is, it is this universality, homogeneous social labor, imposed retrospectively into the commodity that makes it exchangeable with money, since money represents the general equivalent or the expression of the relative value that expresses all other values. And therefore, by abandoning the role of surplus value in his understanding of money, Bertie also abandons a critical reading of political economy, where money as general equivalent is a formal expression of social relations in the abstract. De Bernhoff calls, what de Bernhoff calls for is a reevaluation of the working group's conclusions in light of an account of the inclusion of production combined with a critical application of economic categories. De Bernhoff's monetary theory therefore provides the conceptual tools to analyze not only the role of banking capital and interest-bearing capital from the point of view of the money form, but how these forms and institutions are implicated in both the realm of production and the social reproduction of societies, as these forms and institutions base themselves on social relationships that are not strictly determined by the fetish character of the value form. A mode of analysis that requires us to understand money as a distinct form that is both separate from and imminent to capital. A significant aspect of de Bernhoff's work that requires further attention is her emphasis on the role of non-capitalist institutions as necessary for the reproduction of both social life through the wage relation and de facto also the reproduction of life qua life, including those excluded from the laboring process, and also the non-reproduction non of production, productive forces internal to neoliberal trends. And that, so that side and the reproduction of money as a general equivalent is another aspect of Suzanne de Brunhoff's work to pay attention to. These two sides effectively reproduce formally through the movement of money's circulation. As de Bernhoff has emphasized, it is at the point of analysis of credit money where non-capitalist institutions intervene, yet this intervention nonetheless has its basis in the formal dynamic of the value form. Significantly, because credit money is advanced before final realization of capital, Credit money is not valorized value. It is therefore set apart from the autonomy of the value form. Outside of capital, but imminent to it, according to de Bernhoff, non-capitalist institutions are structurally implicated at the level of credit and finance. It's only through a reading of capital committed to understanding money as money that we are able to locate within Marx's account of social form the internal complexity of subjection to capitalist social relations that are not determined by the fetish character only. Something that facilitates a reading of the workings of social reproduction that the money as capital reading approaches, albeit with a theoretical premise that I would claim undermines the validity of their conclusions. In the context of heavily financialized markets structuring social life today, 
This mode of inquiry is indispensable as more and more subjection becomes determined by circulation of credit money and not money that is formally valorized. Therefore, although it is necessary to account for these non-capitalist forms of subjection to be understood as rooted in the fetish character of the capital relation, to understand the ways in which social life is subjected to capital today, we need to pay more attention to the interplay between capitalist and non-capitalist forms and institutions. Suzanne de Bernhoff's Marxist monetary theory, as influenced by her encounter with the journal Primo Maggio, therefore offers us invaluable insight into any attempt to understand current power relations from a Marxian perspective. Thank you. So this is a paper that's part of a um, shortened version of a much larger paper that hopefully will be published soon. Um, and it's on uh, rethinking uh, Marxist theory, uh, Marxist category of surplus value. Um, so for me, one of the important ideas that I've taken away as an activist, um, working in a range of struggles, mostly in South Africa, around land, housing, state violence, things like that, is that there are many way, different ways to um, working towards uh, building a better world. Um, and then I would add that um, there are many different theories and which we could see as tools that uh, can contribute to revolutionary social change. So I want to use this ethic to frame this, frame this talk um, to show why it's important to think using many different frameworks. Um, so uh, Bell Hooks has said that um, whatever the shape uh, and direction of the black liberation struggle, uh, domestic space has been a crucial site of organizing for forming political solidarity. Home place has been the site of resistance. So I quote uh, Hooks, uh, a black feminist, because she theorizes a resistance to capitalism drawn from her own experience, not from Marxism. Uh, specifically, this was her experience as a black woman resisting capitalism from within what she calls the home place. Uh, her, her essay, Home Place, Aside Resistance, critiques the common feminist belief that gender equality must be fought primarily in the workplace. Um, it is part of a feminist history of feminist decentering of the factory and recentering of the sphere of reproduction. So while Hooks is not a Marxist, she converges um, closely with autonomous feminists such as Della Costa and Federici. Um, and I want to show why it's important to value that convergence. So the argument of this paper, um, uh, I, I see is to bring Marx's theory of value into conversation with non-Marxist thought, such, that, uh, such as that of Hooks and, and, and those of social movements more generally. Um, I argue that within debate, the debates around production of value under capitalism, it is useful, useful to make an explicit conceptual distinction between where surplus value is produced and where it is extracted, and that Marx only made provision for the latter. Um, in doing so, I will be employing a long line of open Marxist and autonomous feminist theories with the goal of defetishizing um, our, our work with Marx. Um, abstraction, um, is, you know, should not be seen as an end in itself, but rather in a process—a process by which we engage uh, with li living ideologies, ideologies of struggle that come out of actual struggles. So, Marx um, and the value of work—it's important uh, to quickly define exactly what Marx means by surplus value, so that there's no confusion about terms. Um, Marx's understanding of capitalist accumulation was based on a theory of surplus value, distinguishing it from uh, the Ricardian theory of value. According to Marx, all value accrues from, uh, from workers' labor power. Under capitalism, labor power is purchased by the capitalist um, at its value of reproduction, i.e. subsistence. Here, the distinction between labor power and labor time is essential. Once the worker has completed the labor, labor time, which corresponds to the value of of his labor power, um, he continues to work and produce for the capitalists. The value of what is produced after this point is surplus value, right? So for the capitalists, surplus value is the reason of existence. Quoting Marx, their one single life impulse. Capital seeks only to maximize surplus value through expanding the workday and increasing productivity. 
This is where the difference between productive and unproductive labor comes in. The content of labor and its use value is not important here. Rather, according to Marx, labor power is productive only where it, is pr it produces capital through the extraction of surplus value. On the other hand, labor is considered unproductive where it does not produce for capitalists um, to produce surplus value. Um, this includes the sphere of reproduction, i.e. unpaid labor of housework and the paid uh, labor of working class consumption. So in orth orthodox Marxism, um, there is much contention reg regarding the methodology that Marx employed in, in his work. Um, many traditional interpretations of Marx have embraced a highly structured and rigid understanding of, of categories such as surplus value, production, and reproduction. The origin of, of orthodox Marxism, including the work of De Leon, Plekhanov, and Kotsky, um, is gen generally attributed to the scientific materialism of uh, Frederick Engels, who saw Marx's work um, as turning socialism into a science, into economics. Um, now, this has been used to drive a sole fo focus on the productive worker as their evolutionary subject. Uh, Mendel writes that the creation of surplus value makes this group of workers potentially re revolutionary. The reverse assumption is that any worker who does not produce surplus value for the capitalist cannot be revolutionary and must therefore be led. Um, now, questioning the revolutionary subjects. So such theories frame the productive factory worker as, as the revolutionary subject of the working class, therefore orienting a hierarchy of struggle around him. The, um, traditional Marxist theory has a long history of theorizing the factory worker as male, even while many of the first factories um, and its workplace organizing was dominated by women and children. Um, so unacknowledged by many orthodox Marxists is that the majority of 20th century revolutionary struggles were first and foremost, foremost peasant struggles. And as Silvia Federici explains, Starting with the Mexican and Chinese revolutions, most anti-systemic struggles of the last century have not been fought um, only or primarily by waged industrial workers, um, Marx's revolutionary subjects, but by rural, indigenous, anti-colonial, anti-apartheid, anti and anti-feminist movements. So what's Marx's relation to orthodox, this conception of orthodox Marxism? Even though Marx first situated the industrial worker as the revolutionary subject, he was more ambiguous as to whether his theories are indeed scientific. On the one hand, his numerous, numerous chapters on laws of capitalism lend credence to Engels' claims. On the other hand, Marx also asserted that his methodology was primarily process-oriented. Um, Holloway, for instance, points out that much of Marx's later works were en edited by Engels with the purpose of promoting a, a certain scientific interpretation of Marx. But if you want um, a thorough explanation of uh, why Marx's method should uh, be understood as process rather than science, uh, you, sh you should also take a look at C.L.R. James' notes on dialectics. Um, now, if Marx's methodology is understood as a process, then the fetishization of such categories falls away. This process-oriented understanding is essential to Marx's theory of value. From this perspective, reproduction is not only understood, according to Marx, as the synchronon of capitalist production, but it also underscores a relationship that is continuously evolving and reciprocal. Or as Marx put it more eloquently, the conditions of production are also those of reproduction. If production be capitalist in form, so too will be reproduction. This is a more open way of understanding surplus value. At the same time, as Holloway, warn, Holloway warns us that the attempt to put all the blame on Engels diverts attention from the contradictions that were undoubtedly pre present in Marx's own work. Uh, this is expressed in the unresolved tension between fetishism and process within his theoretical paradigm. So, um, decentering the factory. I'm, I'm, now, I'm not going to go into much detail of the genealogy, but many people, already, many people here probably already know it. Um, Italian workerism was influenced by many 
of these current, uh, many currents, including from Mao to Fanon to C.L.R. James and the Johnson Forest tendency. Um, it was workerism which set the stage for reevaluation of, of the value theory of labor, extending workers' struggles outside the shop floor and into the community, uh, or as uh, Tronti put it, the social factory. Um, however, this concept, while expanding struggle outside the, fact, the traditional factory, ignored the home as a key site of the production of surplus value, and therefore a key site of resistance to capitalism. This is where the contribution of Italian autonomous feminists and other feminists like Della Costa, Selma James, and Fortunati um, um, have intervened. So redefining surplus value. Um, these, these critiques of Marx turned the relationship between labor and value on its, on its head, arguing that surplus value was produced in the sphere of reproduction, the often unwaged work of reproducing the worker. Um, whereas previous Marxist feminist theory tended to see the movement of, of women from the home into the workforce as the solution to patriarchy, this re-theorization of value production understood women as already being exploited through, by capital through the patriarchal family structure itself. So Federici puts it in this way. At the center of this critique is the argument that Marx's analysis of capitalism has been hampered by the inability to conceive of value-producing work other than through the form of commodity production and his consequent blindness to the significance of women's unpaid reproductive work in the process of capitalist accumulation. So um, if, if the reproductive sphere is an essential condition of capitalist development, then we would be forced to redefine the concept of surplus value in such a way that housework and other reproductive work is valued. Um, as process rather than as category, it would be useful to make a distinction between where surplus value is produced and where it is extracted. The latter is al already pretty clear. According to Marx, surplus value is extracted um, from the work of the labor at the point of production, such as the factory. Um, if one were to think critically in terms of process, however, one could make three related points. A, that surplus value is not a thing that a person has, nor is it something that can be quantified. Rather, it is a relation that a person can embody at particular point, points in time. B, the production of surplus value necessarily by definition precedes its extraction. Um, and finally, C, the production of surplus value is contingent upon its eventual extraction, not solely the other way around. So in other words, surplus value can only be produced on the basis that it is eventually extracted by the capitalist and turned into capital. Um, it must follow then that surplus value can be produced at any point in the production, in the process of reproduction and conveyed in terms of labor power to the, to the exploited worker who can then store it and embody it in anticipation that it will eventually be extracted from their labor power. This makes sense um, as Fortunati and uh, as well as Della de Costa and James points out from the perspective of the unpaid worker doing housework. She not only feeds her husband who labors for the capitalists um, but also bears children and raises them um, to also become productive and reproductive laborers for capital. Uh, she's producing labor power and therefore simultaneously also producing surplus value for potential extraction. Uh, this also makes sense from the perspective of the capitalist who knows very well that in purchasing the individual's labor power, they are also potentially pur purchasing the labor power of an entire family. Through Mar though Marx uh, didn't recognize this, the family not only produces value, but specifically produces surplus value for the capitalist. Given this, the reformulation of surplus value, sorry, of surplus labor, um, the productive and unproductive distinction also needs to be re-theorized. Some, such as Negri, uh, advocate doing away with this distinction altogether. On the other hand, David Harvey, uh, but this is David Harvey, the political economist, not the ge geographer, uh, attempts to expand um, productive labor to include all labor that produces and reproduces for capitalism. I would suggest taking a third approach, 
making a tripartite distinction between directly productive labor, indirectly productive labor, and unproductive labor. The first fits well within the more traditional definition of productive labor. The second, indirectly productive labor, suggests the, the existence of labor that contributes to surplus value production while not being directly extracted by the, by the capitalist. Finally, unproductive labor would uh, imply any labor that has not been made to produce for capital or which has refused or resisted capitalist forms of production and reproduction altogether. Um, so cent centering, the, um, centering social reproduction. Through this de de redefinition, a few points become clear. Firstly, that there is a difference between directly and in indirectly productive labor, but that this distinction is fluid and limited as both remain part of the same social relation. Secondly, the indirect nature of, product of productive labor in the, sphere in the sphere of reproduction tends to further obscure the capitalist social relation in comparison with directly productive labor. This means that those struggling in the sphere of reproduction need to also struggle for their labor to be seen and ideologically valued in the first place. Finally, both types of productive labor suggest different but overlapping and complementary ways of resisting the, the labor capitalist mode of production. Uh, this suggests a feasible confluence, for instance, of labor and social movement struggles. Theoretically, then, one could trace um, value extract, extracted by capitalists back to every site where it is produced, helping us look for new ways to disrupt surplus value production. Um, I suggest I distinguish between the location where surplus value is extracted and where it is pr produced to demonstrate how capitalist work flows operate in practice. Whereas surplus value can be extracted from a single node, um, it is social relations within society that allow for value pr produced in, in the, social, the social factory to cir circulate. Understanding that surplus value is produced before it is extracted forces us to center the sphere of social reproduction, allowing us uh, to challenge both forms of exploitation and oppression at the same time. Um, seen this way, the entire social factory becomes recentered as a potential site of resistance to capitalism. This serves a political function. Um, on the one hand, it asserts that capital is interested in co-opting and managing all value-producing work. And on the other hand, it implies that those resisting capitalism must be able to understand how capital values this work. Um, so my last section is about how it can be used. So recentering anti-systemic struggle. The goal is, of this paper has been to rework Marx's theory of value in such a way that it's brought back into conversation with actually existing struggles against capitalism. Um, these are, there are three, uh, at least three, but much more, also more than that, possible ways of doing this. The one way is to link the chain of value production. Um, the decentering surplus value production has the ability to um, illuminate um, the, thing, the, the, the linking of social movement and, and, and union struggles. So if um, the person doing housework as an unpaid worker is seen as producing value that is then extracted by, by capital, social movement unionism would center strike action around the home and the community. So in South Africa, South Africa has a long history of this type of uh, struggle driven specifically by women. Um, and Kamalita Naker has, has pointed, uh, points to the 1960s boycotts of uh, Simba Chips and Colgate. Um, and this is what also took place um, in the Marikana Miner strike in 2012, um, which was a wildcat strike which is driven, which it was expanded to a general strike, driven specifically by women, children, in, uh, as well as informal traders and minibus operators and people like that in, in, in the community. A similar situation occurred during the wildcat farm worker strike in the Western Cape of South Africa. Um, here, the whole, whole communities erupted in protest around wage and service delivery issues, um, refusing to follow established trade unions. Um, 
Another approach is disrupting surplus value production. Um, and for this, the road blockade is a common tactic used by the world's poor to, to, to engage in this kind of way. Um, Anne Harley explains that these tactics are, are the functional equivalents of workers downing their tools. Instead of directly stopping production, they stop inputs and outputs from, uh, to production. Um, so the South African shack dwellers movement, Abashale Basum Jondolo, um, utilizes road blockades to disrupt the production of surplus value, preventing goods from being delivered to the market, but also preventing children from getting to school, so preventing their reproduction, creating shortages of food um, in, in, the home, in homes, and preventing workers from getting to their jobs. These are all re reproductive um, labor functions. Um, at the same time, such approaches have its limitations. Um, as Federici points out, uh, reproductive labor is important for the continuation of working class struggle. If we, ref if we refuse it completely, we risk destroying ourselves and the people we care for. Um, reproduction in the commons. Um, this forces us to, rethink, to, to think uh, of long-term strategies that refuse to work for capitalism. Given uh, the lackluster history of state-centric attempts at revolution, alternative, alternatives have emerged in the concept of the commons, physical, uh, which are physical and abstract social property relations held in common by groups of people. Practically, this can take the form of communal urban farms, cooperative kitchens in Peru, or the reorganization of the neighborhood for collective housekeeping and childcare. Um, however, it's important to know that not all commons are sites of resistance. As Della Costa and James Warren, uh, to quote them, um, the question is not to have communal canteens. We must remember that uh, capital makes fiat for the, for the workers first and then their ca canteen. For this reason, to demand a communal canteen in the neighborhood without integrating this demand into a practice of struggle against the organization of labor, against labor time, uh, resists giving the impetus for a new leap that, on the community level, one would regiment uh, um, none other than women in some alluring work that we, have, we, we will then have the possibility at lunchtime of eating shit collectively in the canteen. So even radical egalitarian ways of organizing groups of people have the, can have the effect of reproducing the worker so that capital can extract more value by paying uh, wages below the normal costs of reproduction. Um, and there's been a lot of work in South Africa on, on this actual point. Um, and indeed, capital knows this and encourages this, even if they won't uh, acknowledge it openly. So Praxis then must conceptually link the struggle of the commons to the issue of disrupting surplus value production. The key question we must ask is whether communal labor whether the communal labor we engage in is unproductive and whether it is, um, or whether it is productive, whether its productive nature is being obscured. So the goal of this paper has been to rethink the way we understand Marxist theory of, of value so that we can bring it back into conversation with struggles and, and movements that do not necessarily define themselves as Marxist. Uh, when Hooke sees the home place as a site of resistance, she's able to understand this process without the lens of Marx's uh, critique of political economy. As Hooke shows, we do not necessarily require Marxism to legitimate the struggle. However, in reevaluating uh, this theory of surplus value, we can perhaps make it more theoretically useful as a tool in the struggle against capitalism. Knowing how and where surplus value is produced can help us strategize uh, when and where, the, where to disrupt uh, reproduction as well as how to produce spaces where we can struggle against the capitalist, social, social, capitalist production altogether. Thanks. Those of you that came in late, Aaron's going to read Fred Mosley's paper because unfortunately Fred couldn't make it, but um, he sends his apologies. Um, okay, so this is totally, I think this is, this is an excerpt or it's a description of 
what Fred's going to be writing for his editorial introduction to the English translation of uh, Marx's manuscripts of 1867 to 68. Okay. Um, the so-called transformation problem has been the most important logical criticism of Marxist theory over the last century and the main reason for rejecting Marxist theory. As you know, the transformation problem has to do with the apparent contradiction between the labor theory of value and the empirical tendency toward equal rates of profit across industries. According to the labor theory of value, labor is the only source of new value and hence the only source of surplus value or profit. Therefore, the theory seems to imply industries with a higher than average proportion of labor to capital, i.e. a lower than average composition of capital or ratio of constant capital to variable capital should have a higher than average rate of profit, ratio of surplus value to total capital. In addition, industries with a shorter than average turnover time should have a higher than average annual rate of profit because less capital has to be invested in order to produce a given amount of surplus value in a year. However, these two apparent predictions of the labor theory of value are contradicted by the tendency toward equal rates of profit across industries, no matter what the composition of capital or the turnover time of individual industries. <clears throat> As is well known, in part two of volume three of Capital, Marx presented his theory of prices of production that attempted to explain this apparent contradiction. Critics ever since uh, Borchewitz in 1905 have argued that Marx's attempt failed because he, quote, failed to transform the inputs of constant capital and variable capital from values to prices of production. There has, of course, been a long controversy over the transformation problem, with many participants, including some innovative interpretations in recent decades. I have written a recently published book on this subject entitled Money in Totality, a Macro-Monetary Interpretation of Marx's Capital and the End of the Transformation Problem, available in pa paperback uh, from Haymarket probably here. Um, part one of the book presents my macro-monetary interpretation and argues that Marx did not fail to transform the inputs and there is, there, and there is no transformation problem in Marx's theory. Chapters three and four present 180 pages of textual evidence from all four drafts of capital to support this interpretation. Part two of the book is a comprehensive review of the literature on the transformation problem in recent decades including individual chapters on Shake's iterative interpretation, the new interpretation of Foley and Dumenil, the temporal single system interpretation of Kleiman and McLone, the rethinking Marxism interpretation of Wolff, Roberts, and Caleri, and the organic composition of capital interpretation of Fine and Saad Philo. However, unfortunately, Marx considered in volume three only one of the two issues mentioned above, the issue of unequal compositions of capital, and he did not consider the other issue of unequal turnover times. The long debate over the transformation problem has also ignored the issue of unequal turnover times because Marx did not himself discuss it. It is more complicated to deal, and it is more complicated to deal with than unequal compositions of capital. Marx noted the second reason why the prices of production of commodities differ from their values, unequal turnover times across individual industries, in the following passages in part two of volume three. So these are three quotes. One, we have now to investigate one, differences in the organic composition of capitals, two, differences in their turnover times. Quote two, besides the differing organic composition of capital, there is another source of inequality between value, rates of profit, the variation in the length of capital turnover and the different spheres of production. Third quote, we shall ignore for the time being the differences that may be produced here by variation in the turnover times. This point will be dealt with later. Unfortunately, Marx did not return later in volume three to this important subject of the effect of unequal turnover times on prices of production. Fortunately, however, it has been discovered in recent years that Marx did return to this important subject in a later previously unknown manuscript, the manuscript of 1867 to 68, which was published for the first time in German in 2012 in the Mega Volume 2, 4.3. But unfortunately, there are no plans by publishers to translate this important manuscript. A section of this manuscript, 25 pages, presents Marx's initial attempt to incorporate unequal turnover times into his theory of prices of production. 
I have arranged for a translation of these 25 pages, and this translation will be published in Historical Materialism, along with my introduction. My introduction attempts to clarify the overall logic of this excerpt and some of the technical details. A somewhat lengthy introduction is necessary because the excerpt itself is a messy first draft with many numerical errors. This is what my presentation would have been about. I would be happy to send a copy of my introduction and the translation of Marx's 25 pages to anyone interested, and his email is fmosley, M-O-S-E-L-E-Y, at mtholyoke.edu. Um, I have also discovered recently that there is another reason that the manuscript of 1867 to 68 is important. In Marx's original draft of what later became chapter 4 of Engels' volume 3 of Capital, written in the manuscript of 64 to 65, Marx wrote only the title, quote, Effective Turnover on the Rate of Profit. Engels explained this title only in the preface to his volume 3, written in 1894, and stated that he wrote chapter 4 by himself. However, Engels did not mention Marx's manuscript of 67 to 68, in which Marx wrote about 100 pages on the subject of the effect of the turnover, on the effect of turnover on the rate of profit. So, Engels seems to have been unaware of Marx's later manuscript, which unfortunately is not surprising because there seems to have been very little communication between Marx and Engels about volume three. Engels wrote to friends after Marx's death that Marx avoided the subject of volumes two and three because he knew that Engels would insist that he finish the damn thing. Engels chapter four is seven pages and is much simpler than Marx's 100 pages in the manuscript of 67 to 68. Engels chapter, <laughs> Engels chapter includes only circulating capital and Marx's manuscript includes both fixed and circulating capital. And Marx introduces two rates of profit that he uses for different purposes the, quote, rate of profit on the cost price, i.e. on the consumed capital, and the more common rate of profit on the advanced capital. So this manuscript provides an opportunity for a further development of this important topic of the effect of the turnover time of capital on the rate of profit in Marx's theory. I'm trying to raise enough money to pay for the translation of this entire manuscript, which would probably cost around $50,000. So if anyone has any suggestions for me, <laughs> For funding sources, please let me know, and then it ends with a really nice um, uh, clip art smiley face. So. <laughs>